Welcome to the Equipping Podcast. My name is Nathan, and as always, I'm here with my co-host, Karen Henson. Hello, everyone. What's going on, Karen? You know, really excited to podcast today. Mm. Can you use it like that? It's a podcast kind of day. Yeah. Let's do it. We're going to start a pretty ambitious project today, Karen, and that is we are going to podcast the entire Bible. Yeah, we are. What's up? (laughs) It's going to be awesome. It's going to be epic. However long it takes us, we're just going to start picking away at different books of the Bible and give historical and cultural background and the overall theme of each book. And we are starting with the last book. And why is that? Because the last shall be Mm, Jesus juke. I love it. (laughs) So we're starting today with the book of Revelation. You guys enjoy this episode. Today we are going to talk about the book of Revelation. And it's going to be totally awesome because (laughs) it's not confusing at all. Yeah, we have great clarity on this. (laughs) We're ready to talk to y'all about it. We are so clear about this (laughs) that, I mean, yeah, anyway. But to help us talk about the book of Revelation, we have in the studio with us today, Dr. Scott Duvall. He's the Fuller Professor of Biblical Studies and the Chair of Biblical Studies at Washita Baptist University. Go Tigers. Which is, uh, which is where I went to school. And uh, Dr. Duvall has been a friend for a long time and a mentor of mine. And I'm super excited to have you here with us today talking about Revelation. So welcome, man. Hey, it's great to be here, Nate. Thanks, man. Dr. Duvall has written actually quite a bit of stuff on Revelation, but for today, I want to push you toward a book called The Heart of Revelation, which is uh, very lay accessible, and it's uh, it's going to stay away from pushing any kind of like specific interpretation, but instead is going to help you understand like the major themes of of the book of Revelation. It's really accessible. It's a really helpful tool. So I'd encourage you to pick that up. He's also written the Revelation, the book of Revelation in the Teach the Text commentary series. So if you're a little more of a student of biblical studies and want to pick that up, I would encourage you to do that as well. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Tell us about your family and then how did you get involved in the study of Revelation? I grew up in the Metroplex uh, on the Fort Worth side and Went to Washita as a student and then came back to this area to go to seminary. And while in seminary, uh, one of my professors offered a class on Revelation. I didn't know anything about it, so I took it, and I was completely blown away and fascinated by it. Mm. Uh, I had only heard extremes yeah, when it right. comes to this book. Yeah. Uh, either avoid it like the plague or you know, you become a walking revelation <laughs> Nazi, basically. <laughs> so... The uh, end is coming yeah, sign right. on the end yeah. of the, on the corner. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. So, um, you know, I began to study it and over the years, uh, I had the opportunity at Washita where I'm a new Testament prof to teach it and students really connect with it mm-hmm. because it's a book of hope. It's a book of worship. Yeah. It's a book about God mm-hmm. and his glory and about our mission and about enduring and so many other things that, you know, we really, really, really need this book. Mm. So when we think about coming to any kind of, any kind of really ancient text at all or any text period, but especially when we're studying the Bible, when we come to it, uh, like we like to say in our keys to effective Bible study class, that context is kind of everything. (laughs) You have to, you have to lay the foundation. You have to have a solid starting point that you're starting from 
otherwise it doesn't make any sense. No. And so walk us through what had been going on the decades prior to this book being written so that we can understand like what, what's the need of it? What is it trying to accomplish? And so you have Judaism, obviously like second temple period Judaism, Jesus hits the scene claims to be the Messiah in the ways that nobody expected, right? right? This right. crucifixion resurrection event happens. The primitive church is blown away. And then just real high level, just walk us through what happened between that and John being exiled on Patmos. Yeah. Well, you know, Jesus resurrection changes everything. And these, um, uh, these Jews become a Jesus following Jews and they began to spread the gospel, the good news of Christ everywhere, begins to turn the world upside down. And Paul's very much involved in this. And, you know, the outline of Acts could be described as Jerusalem, Judea, and the ends of the earth. Yeah, and so this, yep. this whole movement begins to move outward uh, toward Rome, especially. Mm. And, uh, you know, Paul's imprisoned there. And so as you move toward the end of the first century, you know, you have Christianity interacting with Rome a good bit more. Yeah, yeah. And you have these guys called Roman emperors that weren't exactly friendly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and were also calling themselves God. Yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. And so Revelation is either set during the time just after the death of Emperor Nero, mm -hmm. and he's quite famous. Uh, probably most people have heard of him, and that's in the late he's 60s. He's also quite crazy. Yeah, yeah. yeah he yeah, was a nut. But that's a whole other thing. <laughs> Side note. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. He, he's uh, he's justifiable. <laughs> Certifiable. Certifiable. <laughs> Bonafide. Yeah, right, right. And then toward the end of the first century, Domitian in AD 95. So one of these two emperors is uh, in charge when Revelation's written. Most mm. scholars are going to go with uh, the, the later the date. The later date, yeah. Yeah. But John is most evangelicals would say this is john the apostle right, the one yeah. who had walked with jesus mm -hmm. and he's in trouble um he lived a long time tradition says that uh he ended up in ephesus where he was a christian leader there's a grave there that uh they say marks where he was buried mm. it's interesting though that you say ephesus because when you unpack and you look at the book of acts like if you're listening to this and you're familiar with Acts, then you know that part of the, well, I mean, a huge part of the book of Acts in the spread from Jerusalem to, to Judea and Samaria and then to the ends of the earth, the ends of the earth part was really as the, the Christian, the early churches dispersed. And then you have guys like Paul and Barnabas and Silas and these kind of dudes who are going into modern day Turkey, up into Greece, up that whole area and are planting churches like the one at Ephesus, right? right? And are putting elders there, but there's this tension in the early church because they're asking the question, if it's a Greek or uh, a Gentile who converts to Christianity, they're going, what does this mean? What does it look like to be Christian? Can I keep the loyalties to other gods that I maybe have been worshiping my whole life and also worship Jesus? From a Jewish standpoint, they're going, what does it mean to be a Jew and a Christian? And do I have to renounce that whole way of life in order to become a Christian? So in Acts 15, you have this whole Jerusalem council where they come together and they're asking the question, 
hey, what do we do with all these Gentile believers? Like, what what requirements are we going to put on them? And you see the this tension. I mean, even uh, when when uh, Paul writes to the church in Rome, at one point the emperor there is like, hey, there's so much strife going on with the early church there that they're like expelling the Jews from Rome because they're like, what? <laughs> People are trying to figure this out, and so I think. A big part of the context of the book of Revelation, because it's addressed to the seven churches of Asia Minor, is what is that situation in those churches? And the churches are are named in the order in which a postal carrier would visit them. Right. It's in a clockwise order. And Ephesus is kind of the is mother the main church. one. Yeah. yeah. It's like it's like you ship something to like Dallas. And then it goes out to like Waco and Stevensville. And, yeah. Well, I mean, if you're from the DFW area, then it, oh yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So you have these churches, and their situation is is very complicated because they want to be faithful to Jesus, but they have the Roman Empire that is putting pressure on them, and then they have Jews who have not committed to Jesus and are protected. Judaism was protected, uh, uh, you know, under kind of ancient law against any they're an ancient religion it was a permitted religion yeah so, don't persecute those people that's yeah. right so they can if you actually read the seven letters uh jesus faults um unbelieving jews just about as much as anybody mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. what they're saying to the romans is listen these christians are not jews they're not ancient they're not protected so you know have have at it with them and fair uh, game over there that's right drive them out yeah so they are accusers and uh, Jesus pretty much blasts them. It's not that he's anti-Semitic, but you know they are turning on his people, his his followers. Yeah, and he's anti antichrist. Yes, <laughs> cha-ching. That's awesome. Oh boy. Okay. <laughs> so you know John is one of these leaders, and as he as he just speaks truth and leads and continues to follow Jesus loyally, he ends up on this tiny island called Patmos. Um, it's off the coast of Ephesus. And the Romans, instead of, you know, executing everyone, uh, sometimes they would just exile you. And they shipped him off to this tiny little island. And so as an older man, what's he supposed to do? What's the Christian tradition around that? Do we think that he's expelled because he's a leader in this local church? Or what's in chapter one, verse nine, John uh, tells us a little bit about that. He says, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Yep. So he, I think because of his witness, mm-hmm. he got himself in trouble. Yep. You know, if one of the parallels that, that you're going to perhaps think of as you listen to this is, is Nazi Germany. Mm. And in Nazi Germany, you have the Hitler figure you have the empire, and then you have a lot of Germans that are having to decide if they're going to follow Hitler or not. Um, and there's social pressure. All kinds of there's pressure. There's economic pressure. Big time. Like if you're a Jew and you're following Jesus, it's real easy when when you begin to pay real consequences for your belief to go, uh, actually, I'm a Jew who's protected from persecution. And if you're a Gentile who's experiencing real consequences or persecution because of your belief, you're going, oh, I can still be a part of this like trade guild over here that yeah. that a part of it is emperor worship, but I'll just kind of ignore that part and just kind of like associate with them. And yet there's this true confessional people in the midst of that that are going, no, 
we've got to be different. Yeah, because, you know, this empire involved religion. So you would be caught up in the worship of the emperor. So when you think about, uh, you know, taxation and military and trade guilds and, and temples and all these symbols, even on the coins, you have coins where the goddess Roma is sitting on the seven hills. I mean, mm-hmm. you're, you know. That's your currency. Yeah. yeah. And we have. It's in your pocket. We have rulers on our money today. And, you know, they would have the Roman emperor or the goddess Roma or some other symbol. So when, you know, you constantly receive the message, Caesar is Lord, mm-hmm. then that directly contradicts the primary Christian message that Jesus is Lord. So if you're faithful in in that witness, you're going to get into trouble. And, you know, as in Nazi Germany, a lot of people avoided trouble by keeping their mouths shut. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then you can read Eric Metaxas, you know, biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and you realize uh, those who didn't keep their mouths shut, you know, they got it. Yeah, what's the, uh, ah, I can't remember the guy's name, but he said, they came for these people and I was silent. Then they came for these people and I was silent. And then they came for these people and I was silent. And finally they came for me and there was nobody there to yeah, speak yeah, up, yeah, you know? Yeah, that's pretty much it. There's that sense of just like, I'm just going to try to stick my head in the sand and hope it'll go away, you know? And it's like, yeah, that's not a good option. So yeah, it's a similar deal. I remember Kennedy quoting, uh, I forget who it was, but, Evil is basically what happens when good men do nothing. Yeah, Edmund Burke. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so John is is on Patmos and he's sharing in these these three basic realities, as he says in one nine. Let me just read that one more time. I'm a partner with you in the affliction. That's actually the word for tribulation. Mm-hmm. So John says we're in it, man. Yeah. Um, I'm a partner in the kingdom, and I'm a partner in endurance. So you have all these forces almost summed up in those three words. So there's pressure from society. There's tension within the church. And he's saying, hey, I'm with you. We're going to do this together, yep. essentially, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Let's shift a little bit here to what is John trying to do high level with this message? He's, he's, he's going to write to these churches. And what's his goal? Okay. So you live in a world, these people lived in this world where they just saw this stuff coming at them all the time. Yeah. And as I mentioned, all these symbols. Mm. And when that happens, you can't simply say, don't believe that, don't give in to that. You have to have what Richard Bauckham called prophetic counter images. You have to create symbols that actually overpower the other symbols. Yeah, it's like counter cultural liturgy or something. Yeah, it is. Like your culture is catechizing or training, and you almost have to like, you're like, no, we're going to put up a competing message. And it has, I think the medium has to be equally competitive. Yeah, right, right. You know, so if if you're seeing all this stuff, then I think what the Lord knew is that John and God's people really needed to see visions of a whole different world. So, for example, the goddess Roma on that coin, Rome is conceived as, as this amazing goddess, but in Revelation, uh, you could make the case that she's a prostitute. Yeah. You know, so what is happening, I think, it's almost like you you get into some kind of virtual reality situation where you put on the goggles mm-hmm. when you read the book and you can imagine this little house church where these people gather and they hear the book read and there's a blessing on the one who, who does that. It's dangerous, but also they have the ability and the faith to say, I'm I'm putting this out there. So you you hear the book 
And as you experience that, you see all of these counter images. Mm. You see God on his throne. Uh, Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. God's in control. God wins. And so as the story unfolds and you finally get to the end and you take off the goggles and you walk back into your world, man, you can be faithful Yeah, yeah. because you have been reminded, you have been transformed by this vision. So revelation as a transforming vision is a great way to conceive of it. So it's a, it's a, Hey, I'm going to through intentional uh, reading of this letter to the churches, I'm going to go listen to it and I'm going to shift narratives. Like the world is telling me this story and I need to go be reminded what's actually happening, which is a different narrative. It ties into, like you said, um, similar images, but this one is, is telling you, no, this is what's really going on. Yeah. And that's, yeah, that is, that is really powerful. I feel like we miss so much of that as a 21st century reader. Like I, if I'm just reading this and just learning about these symbols and I don't have any context for what's going on in the Roman world, then like I miss so much. Of oh, it. it's super that's weird. So yeah. True. <laughs> yeah. 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 So you become fascinated with timelines or yeah. date setting yeah, yeah. or you ignore it totally, which most people do. Yeah. So talk, talk for a minute about those two. How have people traditionally like come to this book? This is more anecdotal, but my, in my experience, and I've been able to teach this in a lot of different settings, I would say about 20% of the people are fanatical about it. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll go preach at a small church and, and the one guy mm. that loves Revelation mm. corners me yep. and begins to just, yep. you know, pepper <laughs> me with questions. And I'm thinking, wow, <laughs> I love you too, bro. <laughs> Uh, so you know about there there's a there's a minority of people that are just obsessed with it and they all want to know when stuff is happening now in my lifetime it's in a sense very egocentric yeah because that assumes everything revolves around me and my world and my time in history and so forth and then about 80 percent, i would say have no clue the book is virtually closed to them and what's so sad is that there's a blessing pronounced early on on the one who opens the book. Mm. So I think the church is missing uh, just this mega dose of hope and perspective and encouragement by allowing this book to stay closed. It's very confusing. If you, you know, if you've not had the opportunity to really dig into this or done a good bit of reading on it, it's just tough. You don't even know where to start. You don't know who to trust. So, Along those same lines, when when we do open the book, like sometimes when I open the scriptures and read them, in fact, probably all the time when I do, um, because I've been trained and because I've thought about these things, when I open the scriptures, I've literally in my mind, I'm like, okay, I'm going back in time. I'm going back to when this letter was first written. And I want to know who is the author? What's the setting? What's the situation that that the author is speaking to? What type of genre of literature is this? Because those are the keys that are going to help us avoid these pitfalls, these interpretive pitfalls. And so when you think about Revelation, um, the first thing that, that immediately hits you when you open the book is, okay, what in the world is going on? You know, you have this, you have this heavenly scene and John is, is he, he sees the risen Christ who's like, hey, come here. I'm going to show you these things. 
the things that were and are and then things that have yet to come, which right. is kind of a, yeah. that's a summary, just like Acts 1-8 is of the book of Acts. This is kind of a summary of the book of Revelation. Yeah. But that genre of literature, which is known as apocalyptic, is a unique genre of literature. And it's super obvious that this is apocalyptic literature. So how do we even begin to approach something yeah. like this? Well, as you look at the book, you see that it's a combination. That's what's so strange is that we're used to hearing in the Bible about odd images, but we're not used to seeing them put together in really strange ways. Mm -hmm. You know, we know, you know, we have, for example, a woman who might be a figure in certain parts of the Bible. And, you know, we know about hills, you know, in worship settings maybe, but you don't really know about a woman who sits on seven hills. <laughs> You know, that, that you don't know what to do with that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, there are just a lot of really If you take that literally, that's... You know about locusts. Mm -hmm. You know about humans. You don't know about locusts with human faces. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. it's the combination of images that is really bewildering. I think, first of all, it's a letter. It opens and closes like a letter. So as you think about it being a letter... That means we have to pay a lot of attention to the historical context. What was going on in those churches in Asia Minor? You know, what were they facing? What were they wrestling with? What were their options? What were their pressures, uh, like you were talking about earlier? And so we begin there. And then it's specifically called a prophecy. Mm -hmm. So if you've ever had an opportunity to look at, you know, the Old Testament prophets, yeah. so much of what the way you read them is the way you read, you read Revelation. This. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And there's a lot of Old Testament prophets in Revelation. Oh, yeah. Allusions to them, yeah. Revelation probably alludes to the Old Testament more than any other New Testament book, but it doesn't quote it. Yeah, right. Uh, almost never uh, does it quote it. But, but that it, begs the point that is, hey, if you're going to understand Revelation, you need to understand the Old Testament. That's absolutely. the world that it's coming Absolutely. Yeah. And where I teach, we have a class on Old Testament prophets and one on Revelation. They're taught the same semester. We really encourage students to get into both because it's a it's very much a spiral effect as you as you pick up things in one and can see them in the other. I have a buddy who uh, is an Old Testament scholar, and it's funny because when he became a Christian, he's fascinated with the Old Testament. And so he would read it constantly. And he read all the New Testament, and then he started to read Revelation, and he stopped like a chapter in and was like, I don't think I'm ready to read this book yet. And so he put it down. And then, and then, and then he said he forgot about it. <laughs> but what he did was he went and got a PhD in Old Testament studies and got really, really good at the Old Testament prophets. And then he was challenged by a New Testament buddy who told him, hey, man, You've never read Revelation? What in the world, you know? And my buddy was like, yeah, I think it's time for me to read it. And he was, and then he told me, he's like, man, as soon as I picked it up, I was like, whoa. This is the Old Testament. Prophet stuff. Yeah. yeah. He was like, apocalyptic, prophetic literature is like all over this thing. And I thought that was really fascinating because he's... He's in a way like uh, has a very fresh take on it because he doesn't have all the baggage of all the, the revelation. Stuff yeah, 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 exactly. And I, I, I thought that was really interesting insight. No, that's great. And so as you all are talking, I'm, I'm realizing our listeners are probably thinking, oh, OK, there's a framework that I should be putting around this 
as I read. If it's prophecy, that should ring some bells that I should be looking at this differently. So what are some of those things that we need to be looking for that would help us interpret? You know, um, when we think of it as prophecy, and I want to mention a little bit more about apocalyptic in a minute, but as prophecy, you I mean, right up front, the book begins in verse three of chapter one. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep what is written in it. Prophecy can be prediction about the future, but it can also be proclamation, thus saith the Lord. And we tend to think immediately that all prophecy is predictive. But if you go back and look at Old Testament prophecy, much of it, probably most of it, is is proclaiming a truth. And here, you know, blessed is the one who keeps the words of this prophecy. So Revelation is mostly about thus saith the Lord. It does deal with future elements, but you know, it's kind of hard to obey a prediction. <laughs> so, so true. <laughs> Something you don't think of. Yeah, right, right. But but when the Lord speaks and proclaims and says, This is what I want my people to to do and mm-hmm. this is who I want you to be, then obedience is gonna be one of the chief responses to you have to, something to do. Yeah. That's right. It's helpful. Yeah. Now, apocalyptic is even more interesting. Uh, in one one, the revelation of Jesus Christ, and uh, please don't call it revelations. <laughs> I knew we would talk about this. This is just like saying Walmart's. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's yeah, the same yeah. thing. <laughs> There's not more than one of them. It's just one vision that it's, John has. It's, it's one revelation. Yeah, and that word revelation in English is a translation of the Greek word apocalypsis, which is also could be understood as our word apocalypse. Um, Apocalyptic literature was common in Judaism from about 200 BC to 200 AD. And there are a lot of characteristics of apocalyptic literature that we won't go into, but it was, it was a literature of hope for people Mm -hmm. who were really, really being pressured big time. And they needed God to intervene and deliver them yeah. and defeat their enemies. Mm-hmm. And so you have you have this message of hope full of visions and symbols and uh, you know like like an epic battle mm-hmm. almost mm-hmm. where God intervenes into history, steps into history, conquers evil, delivers his people, rescues them and then takes them back to live happily ever after. So it's a I mean, there's a whole, you know, we can talk about how you, how you read this kind of literature, but what it definitely does is it, it puts you in this scene where it's epic, it's grand, it's, you know, you think of, of all of the epic movies you've seen, and this, this could trump them all. You make it sound less scary. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, God wins. That's the main I know, message right? of the whole yeah, book. Yeah, it's not scary. It's, it's like you said. It's it's, it's a rescue. Yeah. yeah, totally. One of the just really clear delineating markers of apocalyptic, though, is that in apocalyptic literature, when you see the blending of heaven and earth, you right. get a lot of like angelic or or heavenly counsel otherworldly. or otherworldly yeah. type things. So right. it's almost like when you think of apocalyptic, think of we're, we're dealing in the material world and we're like, uh, most of the time we're assuming that well, this is just kind of all there is. Apocalyptic literature is when it, the author brings kind of the heavenly vision of what's going on really and like overlays it 
over what's happening materially and opens people's eyes to be like, no, this is what's really going on, which I alluded to oh, earlier. Absolutely. And that's kind of the, when, and whenever you're reading things and all of a sudden you're in a heavenly court or uh, interacting with divine beings or seeing things like that, where those things are blended, then you pretty much know you're in apocalypse in the apocalyptic genre. Yeah. And John is like our tour guide. Yep. Uh, he is given this vision and, as you map out the whole book, there is this traveling of John between earth and heaven and back to earth and back to heaven. About it's the seamless movement. Six or seven times, this, the whole scene shifts from, from one vantage point and location. Cosmic to battle to... Oh, yeah, it is. Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's amazing that, that you have this, this back and forth going on. We mm. usually don't notice that. Yeah. So this audience that he's writing to would have been familiar with this type of literature, right? You mentioned a time frame that this was more popular. And so as he's writing and sending it to these churches, would they have understood this genre or is it foreign to them? I think with some help, I, I think through the tutelage of people like John and their familiarity with the Old Testament, a lot of these Jewish Christian leaders knew how to read the prophets, knew how to read Daniel, yep. Zechariah, Ezekiel, mm -hmm. parts of Isaiah, and they were able to say, listen, don't do that. <laughs> no, this is what he's saying. Uh, but it's this combination of God's revelation and God's gifting of teachers for the body of Christ where truth is, is most forcefully you know, put together and presented. Um, it's not just you know, the inspired scriptures, but it's the equipped people of God gifted as teachers to, to make this happen. So with John as their, their tour guide, I think they would have been in good shape. Which I think also applies today is because a lot of people come to the text and they just think like, hey, I'm a Christian. I've got the Holy Spirit. I can read this and I know what it, you know, I can interpret it correctly. And it's like, hey, the Lord has given us the body of Christ. Yeah. And he's given some of us teachers. <laughs> some of us are teachers. And it's like, pay attention to that, you know? Yeah. Because again, we think of ourselves very individualistically, hey, this is about me. When really almost all of the yous that we see in the New Testament are plural. <laughs> it's right. not you. Right. It's it's you guys. Y'all blew people's yeah. minds. Yeah, yeah, totally. Totally. Yeah. It's it's y'all. Yeah. Good old Texas expression. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Okay, so when we've been talking about the type of literature, you said, hey, it's a letter, it's prophecy, it's apocalyptic. So help us understand how we should read and interpret apocalyptic literature. Oh, that's a good question. I think we have to first begin with a little bit of humility. We're not the first people on the planet. God cared about his people who lived a couple thousand years ago as much as he cares about us. So you have to begin with some historical context and the original readers. What did this mean to them? And this begins with the seven churches. I've had the privilege of, of touring these sites a couple of times and just to get inside of their world mm. and to envision, you know, what they would have been going through is part one. Okay. That's step one. And if, if we can realize that God's message to us will be an extension of his message to them, mm. you're on, you know, that's, that's really a great place to start. I think uh, the next thing is, as you realize it's prophetic apocalyptic, and so you're going to have a lot of symbols and images 
one of the worst things you could do with Revelation is to take everything extremely literally. Mm-hmm. Uh, you will back yourself into a corner. You'll create some crazy scenarios that you just can't get out of. And then you'll start manipulating the text to make it all fit. And your system will actually do a lot of damage. Well, you're butchering the text. Yeah. <laughs> That's what you're doing. Thanks, Nathan. That's- but then, so then help us understand, unpack that a couple sentences further. So if we say, hey, we interpret the Bible literally, and then I come to Revelation, you're saying, hey, don't do that. What exactly do you mean by that? Let me preface this too, because I think most of our listeners, when they hear, don't take it literally, a lot of people translate that as, it's not true. Yes. That's right. So, so yeah, that. when I say don't take everything super literally, you know, God can communicate his truth in literal language, but he can communicate his truth in what I call picture language. Yep. We do that all the time in our regular lives. You will describe something to someone and you'll use a comparison or a metaphor or simile. And if they take that literally, you're all in trouble. So if picture language is being used, then one way to distort it is to flatten it, mm-hmm. to just smash it and make it fit into an absolute literal. So so when it's raining cats and dogs. Absolutely. We don't actually believe there are dogs and cats falling we, out of the sky. I uh, hope not. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Hey, but, if you really but, want to read it literally, now, yeah, yeah. you know, more uh, more liberal scholars would say, well, yeah, it's it's you know, you can't take it literally. What they mean is it's not real. And that's not what I mean. Yeah, right. It's real. It's historical. Uh, it will be part of the uh, of our lives and part of history and part of what God's doing. But you have to understand it as picture language and the place to go to understand those images. There are two places. One is the historical context. Okay, so a woman who sits on seven hills would be a reference to a woman figure sitting on seven hills. And you begin to, the more you study, you realize, you know, Rome was portrayed as a woman. Mm -hmm. Rome is a city built on seven hills. This is a reference in the first century to Rome, most likely. When you read about the new Jerusalem in the shape of a cube, the Lord knows we all hope we're not riding elevators. I mean, you know. (laughs) Dallas traffic's bad enough, know, right? right. <laughs> so, but if you study the Old Testament, that's the second place you go, uh, the immediate historical context, but also the Old Testament, uh, and you begin to look at how the temple was crafted, the Holy of Holies is a cube. That's right. Yeah. That's where God's presence mm-hmm. dwells. So when the New Jerusalem comes down in the shape of God's presence, what we're being told is, Heaven is coming to earth and engulfing us, and we will live forever in the very presence of God. Which is why there's no temple. That's right. We are the temple, and we're in the presence of God. Yeah, the presence of God is there, uninhibited, and there's no need for a temple because God's presence is everywhere. It is. It's not not in a localized um, archetype. No, No high priest. We are the priest. Perfect access to our loving Father. Which is way richer than, you know, well, is heaven going to be like, how many stadia high is heaven going to be? And, I, and it's just like, oh my gosh. Well, <laughs> I appreciate engineers, but we need architects. Yeah, that's we right. need artists also. <laughs> we totally do, yeah. And we need buildings to stand up for sure, but we need some some beauty. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and so, you know, things like uh, uh, Jesus as the Lamb of God. Well, he's not an animal, mm-hmm. but... He died on the cross as our sacrificial lamb. Mm -hmm. So it's real. It's historically real. 
but it's picture language because this truth can't simply be flattened into, you know, literal language. And I think we do that just to try and make sense of it. So it's like we're we're scared of what it possibly could be. And so to make sense of the symbolism, we say, oh, it has to be exactly what it says. Right. So And, and we, we just feel nervous about suggesting it might mean something different. Well, I was going to say, I mean, uh, for a uh, hundred years ago and kind of the rise of theological liberalism, you had this movement away from the truthfulness of a text. And I think probably what we did as conservative evangelicals is we said, hey, whatever you do, don't do that. Right. And so we it's almost like we swung too far the other way and began to be like, hey, unless you're reading this totally literally, then you're sacrificing the reliability or the truthfulness of the text. And we're like, wait a minute. No, there's this other way where you can read the literature for what it is, appreciate the use of figures of speech see the picture that's being painted and hold the tension where it's not even really tension. It's just what it is, is no, this truth is being communicated. It's just being communicated in this metaphorical way. Yeah. We have different language vehicles throughout life. Totally. You know, get a letter from the IRS. It means one thing. You get know, a letter from your wife. Yeah. And something else. Totally well, different. Hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> and you would read them differently, right? Yeah, yeah totally. Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, I think we have to let the Bible speak on its own terms, and we have to be the ones who who change and adjust. Mm-hmm. But the beauty of it is that, you know, there's an amazing message there if we will kind of open our ears and listen uh, responsibly. One more thing that perhaps you could do when you're reading this is to, I think when you're when you're interpreting Paul, for example, like if you're doing an intense study of Romans, you begin outlining the book, and then you... You take these sections that you've uh, identified and you outline them and then you outline the subsections and the sub subsections and Mm -hmm. you continue atomizing and scrutinizing and analyzing and breaking it down. I think with Revelation, you know, it's almost the reverse. Mm -hmm. I think you start with the really big picture. I mean, just this macro understanding of what happens and then as you grow and study and learn, you can perhaps work toward a deeper understanding of some of the details, but you do not want to miss the main theological message of each vision in the book uh, in order to, to try and debate some tiny little portion of it, because uh, we tend to want to move toward the details. But I'm wondering if in Revelation, maybe we start with the whole, work toward our understanding of the parts, but, you know... We may not get there. Yeah. You miss the forest for the trees. Yeah, absolutely. So big picture, God wins. And when you, <laughs> when you read the book and you, you encounter something you don't understand, I, I, I tell people, here's the first question. Is it good or bad? <laughs> <laughs> I like it. So is simple. It, is it good or bad? And if it's good, then you say, okay, Lord, help me over time to understand what you're saying here. Yeah, I think and you're onto something, yeah. If it's bad, let's avoid that. Yeah. Let's not do that. Yeah, totally. But yeah, hopefully that'll help. Thanks for listening to the Equipping Podcast. As always, if you enjoyed it, tell your friends, subscribe, or leave us a rating on iTunes. If you have any questions, or today, if you have a prediction for the date that Jesus is going to return, email us at equippingpodcast at watermark.org. Bye. Peace. Peace.